Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. There's a fire on the mountain burning out of control. The sky is set ablaze in all its red and gold. The temperature's rising and the wind is blowing hot. We gotta turn this ship around. Before we run aground, we gotta turn this ship around. Before we run aground. Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where you can find all our shows archived for your binge listening pleasure. We're also now a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, so you can reach us anywhere in the globe, anywhere in the universe, day or night, night and day. Get your thumbs to work. Use your personal digital assistant devices and your computers. Log on to nhtalkradio.com or any of the podcasts, and you can hear us as we stream away into cyberspace. I'm very pleased to welcome to the show this week my good friend, Dan Weeks. Dan, welcome to Off the Record. Good to be back. Thanks, Paul. Dan is... A pretty extraordinary person. I have known Dan for a long time in lots of different capacities. Dan has worked on progressive politics. He continues to work on progressive politics. He works for Revision Energy, a solar company uh, which is on the cutting edge of helping to uh, create a sustainable energy future for New Hampshire and New England. Uh, he is the proud father of now three children, a pair of twins who are three and a half and rambunctious, and a nearly new five-month-old, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, incredibly, incredibly focused and smart young weeks uh, to add to the family. So, Dan, I want to welcome you to the studio. Um, I want to start by talking a little bit about what's going on in D.C. Uh, I was a congressman. I uh, served two terms. I served the first term under a Republican president, George Bush. I served my second term uh, under President Barack Obama. Um, and uh, although there were, of course, lots of disagreements and there was lots of robust debate about policy. Uh, there was not much, if any, talk at that time about the question of impeachment. And now we find ourselves in a historic, in a, in a historic period of time. We were in the first term of uh, President Donald J. Trump. Um, there were questions raised immediately 
surrounding his election. Uh, and we soon found out through the report of Robert Mueller that um, the Russians, at the uh, command of President Putin, had engaged in a longstanding and, and, and comprehensive uh, plot to undermine our elections and, in fact, probably affected our elections. Um, we learned from the Mueller report that Donald Trump did not necessarily conspire or instigate that hacking, but was happy uh, for he and his campaign to take advantage of it in his presidential election. Uh, the second part of the Mueller report raised serious questions about the president's obstruction of justice and essentially laid out a roadmap for Congress to follow uh, should Congress decide to follow the breadcrumbs that Robert Mueller dropped and talk about impeachment. For lots of reasons, including politics, there was a lot of hesitation on the part of Democrats to follow the Mueller breadcrumbs and try to piece uh, together the evidence that he had laid uh, to bring impeachment before the citizens of the United States, although it seemed clear to many that the president had engaged in obstruction of justice. And it was only when a whistleblower came forward to reveal that President Trump had engaged in uh, conduct that uh, threatened our national security, uh, essentially uh, attempting to bribe or blackmail a foreign power uh, whom the Congress had uh, had had provided, to whom the Congress had provided $391 million of foreign assistance um, and who was recently a uh, recent elect, uh, elected president who was hoping to root out corruption, um, essentially bribed or committed blackmail, uh, holding up the aid, refusing a White House meeting unless that president, Zelensky of Ukraine, uh, engaged in uh, or announced that he was going to engage in investigations of the Bidens, which would benefit the president's reelection. There really is no other spin on the evidence that has been brought forth. Uh, what has been striking over the period of time that the impeachment proceedings have gone on is the enormous gap uh, between what the Democrats have presented as evidence and the way the Russians, I'm sorry, the way the Republicans have responded. I get them mixed up because, frankly, these days you can't tell the Republicans from the Russians in many ways because it seems that from the president to his party, um, all of a sudden uh, the adversary of the United States, a known adversary whom the intelligence community unanimously agrees, tried to undermine our elections, worked at undermining our elections, did impact the elections in 2016, does not have our best interests in heart, have been, have been getting aid and comfort from not only President Trump, but the Republicans, who all of a sudden seem to forget that for years um, they considered Russia an adversary. So I get them mixed up. I apologize if anybody took offense at my mixing up the Russians and the Republicans. But the Republicans have taken a a completely different tack. 
They don't seem to be contesting the evidence. They have complained mightily about the process, beginning with the deposition phase when the Republicans and Democrats shared a committee room equally, the counsel for both parties present, counsel for both both sides, Republicans and Democrats getting to question the witnesses, members of Congress from both parties present getting to question the witnesses. And we saw the charade of the Republicans in the halls of Congress uh, walking out because uh, they claimed it was unfair. And in the televised proceedings that we've seen, most, mostly what has happened has been to complain about process. And today, which is a day we are taping this show, uh, what we heard from the Republicans was a kind of unanimous chorus of uh, complaints about the corruption of the Bidens, which presentation really gives meat to the lie that they're trying to perpetrate. Um, It's clear that the president was doing what he was doing for his own personal gain, selling out the Ukraine uh, to uh, a, an adversary who had already uh, illegally invaded and occupied part of their territory, and an ally, Ukraine, a member of NATO who desperately needed the aid that Congress had promised. Now, it is likely that the House on party lines will vote to impeach this president, um, this president who, by the way, and we'll talk about it later, to, today tweeted a, a just an absolutely outrageous attack on 16-year-old Greta Thunberg, the climate activist who was named Time's um, a Person of the Year. Um, but putting that aside, given the tribalism in American politics, and given the way things are playing out uh, in on television before the American public, um, is the public going to be confused by what the Republicans are are saying and doing? And if, uh, as we suspect, the president is impeached in the House and then is um, acquitted in the Senate. Uh, because of the failure of the Senate to achieve a two-thirds majority vote, which is required to convict a president. And I point out that no president has ever been um, convicted in the Senate. What impact on our politics, which have in recent years been tribal, aggressive, the voices of indecent kind of political discourse and uncivil discourse have prevailed. What impact do you see and what impact do you see in New Hampshire? It is a tough time we're in as a country, Paul. I don't need to tell you that. Um, I should say just as a preface that uh, I'm here as a as a dad and as a citizen um, speaking on these political matters, which matter a lot to me and and I think to all citizens, um, not representing my company, Revision Energy. And I'm pretty busy these days uh, working and, and, and being a dad of young kids. But I've been trying to tune in as best I can to these proceedings because I think it's a civic duty we all have to to know what's going on with such an historic proceeding in Washington. And my overwhelming thought is, have they no shame we expect this kind of behavior from this president long before he 
was ever even a candidate for the presidency, touting outrageous conspiracy theories about the last president, the first African-American, Barack Obama, going back decades to clearly racist behaviors. We knew this was who Donald Trump was, and for a crazy set of events, a crazy confluence of events, he got elected in 2016. He got the Electoral College vote. But have the Republican Party members in Congress, have they no shame? Members of the party of Lincoln at one time, my family for many generations were Republicans, and I'm proud of that tradition. I'm proud of the achievements of that party going back decades on things like the creation of the EPA and progressive environmental legislation going back a century to the Weeks Act and conservation of our forests. Teddy Roosevelt, it is a proud tradition. And although we expect what we're seeing from the president, even today, attacking a 16-year-old climate activist, for heaven's sake, does the rest of that party, this proud tradition in Washington, one of our two national political parties, does the rest of that Republican Party have no shame that they cannot act on the basic facts, which this president himself has acknowledged, which is that he used the power of his office and hundreds of millions of dollars of our taxpayer money, foreign aid directed for this ally of ours, Ukraine, he used that power and that money to advance his personal political aims. It's as simple as that. And while he will no doubt continue to be the Donald Trump he's always been, as long as his party continues to be nothing but his henchmen, as far as it appears, I really fear for our country. What about the argument to the extent that the Republicans are making the argument that that even if he did all the things that you say he did, it really doesn't rise to an impeachable offense because after all, there was nothing explicitly said. Uh, after all, the Ukrainians got the aid ultimately in September. He released the aid. It's really – it's just not that bad and you're making a mountain out of a molehill. I think it would be a lot easier for Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats in Congress, the majority in the House, to just slap his wrist and get on with life because we know that the party is – the country is pretty divided and we know they're going to lose almost certainly – a conviction vote in the Senate. So why waste this time and hold up the Congress from doing other important things and perhaps hold back some Democratic presidents for candidate, can, presidential candidates in the Senate from being able to campaign as as they would naturally need to do in these critical months before the New Hampshire primary and, and other primaries. So it, it would be, I think, the smart thing politically for the House to just get on with it, censure him, and and end the process there. But to the extent I've been able to follow, and I think many members of Congress have made just this point, the precedent it would set for Congress to essentially stand down when a bully of a president uses, again, the power of his office for personal political gain, that is something that we just can't stand as a country. What would that say for future presidents who were perhaps like-minded? What road does that set us on as a country, a great democracy? It, it would be just 
totally in contradiction with our ideals as a country. And to the finer points, the arguments we've heard from the other side that, well, he in fact released the aid some weeks later, he did so once the whistleblower came out. And we have no reason to think he would have done so if he hadn't been held to account. And all that was in that whistleblower complaint has been augmented manyfold by what has actually come out from people who were on that call and others involved in the process. So I don't think you can sit through even the portion of the hearings that I got to listen in on while I was busy with other responsibilities. I don't think anybody could actually hear even a fraction of it and not conclude that the House of Representatives has an obligation to hold the line on what is constitutionally acceptable behavior in this country and to use its responsibility as a as a counterpoint in our checks and balances system and impeachment process. We're talking with Dan Weeks here on Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live at nhtalkradio.com. We're going to take a short break to hear from the important folks who keep the station on the air, and we'll be back with Dan to talk about matters of energy and the environment. Don't go away. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the Internet at nhtalkradio.com. For your binge listening pleasure, you can also listen to us as a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. We're talking with Dan Weeks, a political activist, an environmental and energy guy who knows a lot about solar energy, a proud dad of three rambunctious kids, and a good friend of Off the Record. Dan, welcome back. I want to talk about issues around energy and the environment. Um, In the last session of the legislature, the governor, Governor Chris Sununu, vetoed uh, 55 pieces of legislation, some of it bipartisan legislation and some of it uh, directly uh, dealing with issues around energy and the environment. Um, In the presidential campaign and uh, with Time's selection of Greta Thunberg as person of the year, the 16-year-old Scandinavian climate activist who left school and has started a movement of conscience around the globe, standing up to the powers uh, of greed and corruption that are preventing action on the climate crisis, Um, voters are increasingly uh, saying that uh, the climate and what we're going to do about it is a matter of utmost importance. Uh, It is amazing that it has taken this long, but it seems, if we're following uh, the political trends and the tea leaves, that voters have woken up. And seeing that the results that we're seeing now, increased storm activity, more severe weather, um, uh, both warming of uh, you can't escape the images of what's going on uh, in the polar regions on on the internet. You can't escape the impacts that we are all already feeling. I mean, here in New Hampshire, uh, what used to be 
um, fertile lobstering territory is now endangered as the lobsters move north because uh, the waters are warming. Our ski industry, um, which counts on uh, stable snowfall, is uh, endangered by warmer, warming, uh, warmer and warming winters. There is nobody who's been alive for any l- period of time who doesn't remember the way winter used to be and what we're what we're seeing now. The alarm bells from scientists uh, have been, frankly, very alarming. Um, in uh, with with news almost every day showing that the worst predictions of scientists about uh, melting of the ice caps, rise in sea levels, what it means for humanity as a species, which occupies many low-lying areas from New York City to Indonesia, all of which um, are uh, prone to suffering the impacts of a climate crisis. So the, the electorate seems to have woken up. But here at home, Governor Sununu vetoed some important pieces of legislation. Uh, You and I were talking about, um, uh, before we went on the air, two in particular uh, over the course of the past uh, two years. Uh, One was a biomass bill. The other was a net metering bill. Um, In uh, two years ago, uh, the uh, biomass legislation uh, was vetoed but overridden, and the um, net metering legislation, and we'll go into some more detail about these, was vetoed and not overridden. And in just this past session, uh, the bio a biomass bill was um, uh, vetoed and not overridden, and the net metering expansion was vetoed and not overridden. Um, now you're you're a solar guy, not a biomass guy, and I will I will only say that the when I went to Congress ten years ago, I introduced um, the first federal legislation to try uh, and uh, achieve a federal tax credit for the use of biomass energy in residences. Now, there are some environmental concerns or have been about biomass in terms of particulate matter and others, but it uh, is biomass, you know, in, in common parlance is wood chips. And we have power plants that have been burning wood chips and because of the recent legislation are now uh, going out of business. Um, we produce a lot of wood chips in New Hampshire. It is the byproduct of our other industries and logging. Um, most people say it is essentially carbon carbon neutral. Um, and the governor overrode that, I mean, the, vetoed that, uh, the, the, the legislation um, to uh, basically expand um, biomass. Uh, and it could not be uh, overridden. Um, many in the timber industry, the biomass energy industry, made a case to the legislature that uh, the bill was a job saver, generated significant economic activity that benefited uh, the state, but there was no override. Um, and similarly, with the with the net metering bill, which we really can focus on because that's your area of expertise, um, I'm I'm at pains to understand. Number one, why the veto, 
is the is the only explanation that the governor is owned lock, stock, and barrel by the utilities and large corporate interests? And number two, uh, what's at play in the legislature about uh, the failure to override? Well, just to underscore the challenge that we're facing right now and then talk about the policy. Sure. You gave a couple of examples that hit home for me. New Hampshire's changing environment. Um, You know, I got to just pause. The one hour we're spending here talking about these important issues, scientists estimate that six species will go extinct permanently gone from this earth. 150 a day, that's a thousand times the natural rate of extinction in what scientists have called the sixth great extinction, the sixth time in our four billion year history on this planet that we have lost species en masse at a rate, uh, again, a thousand times the natural rate. Uh, Also in the one hour we're sitting here, uh, planet Earth will lose the equivalent of the city of Pittsburgh from fertile land becoming desert in a process of desertification that means folks, not necessarily New Hampshire, but Certainly folks on the African continent, where my wife is from, uh, are forced to become climate refugees. Thousands, again, every hour becoming climate refugees, and thousands more dying as a result. I mean, this is crazy what we're living through. It is the existential challenge that faces humanity in the 21st century. And to come back home to New Hampshire, unfortunately, we have a chief executive in the state who has said on public TV um, on WMUR during his one of his original candidate forums for the Republican primary said that climate change isn't real, denied the science. He, he's an intelligent man, but for some reason he's decided that it's politically smart to even deny the science He's itself. an MIT graduate. He went to MIT. He's an engineer. As he reminds us many times. And I, I just don't get that. We talked a few minutes ago about the proud history of the Republican Party as leaders on conservation and Nixon creating the EPA and conservation of, of our forests and parks and so on. I just don't get what has happened. Um, fortunately, he's an outlier. As you started saying a few minutes ago for this segment, we're seeing the public, including conservatives, starting to get real about the climate crisis that we face. Because you can only deny it so long when the reality of rising seas and raising temperatures and crazy rainfall in a part like this, even as drought becomes a fact of life in many other parts of the world. A recent report out this week finds that winter temperatures in New Hampshire are up 5.8 degrees just in my lifetime over the last four decades what that does to our winter. Anyway, we're, we're seeing this. Citizens of, of all political persuasions are facing this reality. And in the case of the net metering bill, we had over 40 Republican representatives in the New Hampshire House who voted to pass it. And that would have been enough to override the governor's veto. But we fell six votes short because, unfortunately, this governor went to that caucus. And as multiple representatives have reported, Publicly, he told them, it's not about the issue. It's not about your constituents. It's about me. Do not override my veto. And so he managed to turn, twist enough arms and, and prevent an override of this veto, which would have allowed local renewable energy projects to accelerate in this state. And take us from a position today in New Hampshire where less than 1% of our electricity comes from the sun compared to just down in Mass where over 11% comes from solar or Vermont, which is also at 11% solar, this would have helped us inch forward 
you know, past 1%, maybe even 2 or 3% in the coming years. But for whatever reason, this governor vetoed it and exerted a lot of his political pressure to ensure that Republicans sustained his veto. So in – I'm I'm trying to wrap my brain around how any um, intelligent person could reasonably, in the face of uh, the evidence about climate change, in the face of the clear need to uh, transition imminently – immediately, as quickly as possible, from a fossil fuel economy, a dirty fossil fuel economy to a clean economy, uh, fail to simply accept the reality uh, that we all face. It's a, um, as we briefly touched on, the legislation that he vetoed was net metering legislation. Right now, there is a one megawatt cap on the amount of electricity that a customer um, can send back to the grid. Am I correct? That's right. And what that means is if I put a solar array on my house, as I did before I sold my wonderful house, um, I tied into the grid and the excess energy that I didn't need um, was um, tied in to the electricity grid uh, and was essentially purchased uh, and I got credit for what I sold back to the grid. And I don't think I came anywhere near a one megawatt um, uh, limit because one megawatt is significant, uh, but uh, it certainly takes more than a house to produce a megawatt. But if we are to achieve um, a transition as quickly as possible to renewable, sustainable green energy uh, through solar as one of the ways to achieve that. There's wind, there's geothermal, um, uh, there's biomass, there are other non-fossil fuels. Uh, but in terms of solar, uh, the legislation that the governor vetoed would have raised the cap on net metering from one megawatt to five megawatts, which would have enabled um, larger scale arrays uh, for solar energy to be used by towns, by cities, by large commercial developers to um, sell back to the grid in, in, with, with more, going, more going back to the grid. Now, what it meant for the utilities was that they wouldn't be using so much coal, oil, and fracked gas. Uh, because, uh, frankly, the natural gas that's coming, um, that, that everybody is touting, is fracked gas, most of it from Pennsylvania, and fracking has its own issues. Let's take a short break for a word from uh, the good folks who keep our station going, and we'll come back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live at nhtalkradio.com. We're talking with Dan Weeks here on Off the Record. Don't go away. We're going to be back to talk more about the energy crisis and what we can do and what we ought to do.
We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. We are a podcast now on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, so you can find us any time of the day or night, anywhere in the globe or on the new, in the known universe. As you're circling the moon on your way to Mars, don't hesitate to listen to our podcast. It's off the record. We're talking with Dan Weeks, a good friend, a politically active fella, somebody who knows an awful lot about energy, the environment, solar energy in particular, and uh, what we need to do as a state to move things forward and do our part. We ended the last segment, Dan, I was uh, talking a little bit about uh, net metering in a, in, a, in, a, in a pretty plain way about what, what it means. Um, take us back a little bit before, and I, the, the question I'd like you to answer is, what do we need to do as a state to become a leader in renewable and sustainable green energy? If you would, just explain to folks a little bit about how the current scheme for electric power works. It's a far cry from Thomas Edison. Um, what, what does it work and what, who, what are the forces at play here? So the dominant model by which we power our society is, call it big energy from above, where you've got a handful of large power plants. Um, largest nuclear reactor in New England provides a significant share of our electricity. That's Seabrook out in uh, the coastline. And then you've got gas-fired power plants. You've got, not far from where we sit today, a coal-fired power plant, the last one in New England, at Bow Station, which on cold winter days continues to burn coal. And this system of energy, where it's a couple of large power stations sending that power, often hundreds, sometimes even longer distances, losing about 40% of it over the wires just as heat loss. Talk about inefficiency. That system is how we've powered our state and and our country in in the modern age for, for decades now. But we're seeing increasingly a transition from that kind of centralized top-down power system to a decentralized, bottom-up, we call it distributed energy system, where today in New Hampshire, over 10,000 homes, businesses, nonprofits, a couple of municipalities have solar arrays that are delivering power to their local distribution network. We've got a couple dozen hydro dams that have been in operation for many of them a century or longer, still producing power. We've got a couple of wind farms and a huge amount of wind potential, especially offshore. And so these distributed energy systems are still a very small share of our electricity mix in New Hampshire, although other states, including our neighbors to the south and west, have shown that they don't need to be small. They can be a significant share. The challenge to deploying these clean local renewables through a distributed system en masse in New Hampshire is that, for one, our state has set very feeble goals in this regard. It's the policy of the state that only 0.7% of our electricity should ever come from solar all the way through 2030. When was that policy set? That policy was set over a decade ago. It's never been revised for solar. Again, 0.7, 7 tenths of 1% of electricity from solar all the way out through 2030. Where neighboring states have alluded to mass already, their goal is 16% and rising every year. 
And so another bill that we haven't talked about yet would have raised that renewable portfolio standard, the goal that we set as a state, from less than 1% to 5.4% by the year 2025. And then a further goal looked beyond that to more meaningful goals out into the future. We know that doing so will create thousands of local jobs, will bring billions of dollars of investment, private investment into the state, because it's not the state that goes around building these solar farms. They're sending a signal. Essentially, they're saying we're open for solar business. We want experienced companies to come from wherever they may be and set up shop in New Hampshire, hire local granite staters, and install more solar. By setting that goal, as other states have done, we could rapidly make this transition. And the kicker, Paul, is that all the good analysis that's been done by independent players here finds that when we do, and I do think it's a when, not an if, when we do make the transition to renewable energy as our primary energy source in this state, distributed all over the state, local power producers, we will actually save ratepayer money. It's been two years now since solar and wind both reached the point of grid parity. That is where it is now cheaper to add a new unit, a new kilowatt hour of wind or solar power than it is to build an old fossil fuel plant, even by the best modern standards. We've passed that point in the United States. I like to say I'm blessed to be in an industry where the fuel source is free. That's because sunlight falls on the earth enough in one hour to meet human needs for a year if we were to harness it all. That's how abundant it is. And even here in New Hampshire, we've got plenty of free energy falling from the sky. So when we make this transition, yes, there's a capital cost to install solar farms. Taking up a portion of 1% of our land is, is what we would need to allocate to get there, according to Stanford University. But when we do that, that will save us money on our electric bills long term, according to the independent analysis. And it's a point that, unfortunately, some leaders here in Concord just don't seem to understand. And they continue to argue without evidence that it is costing us more to make even this very slow transition that we're making. The numbers just aren't there. So who controls the electric grid? Who controls the issues around whether or not you can sell your power back to the grid or not? Does the grid belong to citizens or does the grid belong to private parties? And if it belongs to private parties, who are they and how are they regulated? Well, up the street from here in Concord is the New Hampshire Public Utilities Commission, the PUC, and they regulate the utility companies, Eversource being the largest. And I would, on a side note, point out that just yesterday, Eversource announced that it will go carbon neutral by 2030 for its own operations. That's a big step, and that's pretty exciting. We hope that they won't stop at their own operations, but ambitiously work to clean up all the the entire grid that they manage in their service territory, and, and they're taking some steps in that direction. But the PUC regulates on behalf of the public, and Eversource and the other utilities here in Concord, it's Unitil, uh, Liberty Utilities is another the New Hampshire Electric Co-op serves portions of northern New Hampshire. These utilities and a couple of municipal utilities that, that are been in operation for a while in towns like Wolfboro, they're the ones who manage the local distribution network. So if you want to put solar panels on your house or your business, a smaller system, you're getting approval from them to deliver that power to the grid. And then we've got ISO New England, the independent system operator, which manages the larger high-voltage transmission network system. 
And if you want to build a larger solar or wind farm, you've got to go to ISO New England to get up past 5 megawatts and be able to deliver that into the transmission network. But they essentially, they do report to, they, they work under the rules set by the PUC, and we as citizens, through both the legislature and the PUC regulatory process, we are empowered to demand that we change our energy mix and we get to 100% renewable. Unfortunately, majority votes haven't been enough with 57 vetoes this past session on all manner of bills. But I'm confident that if citizens of all stripes, including our our conservative friends, really take the climate crisis seriously, we'll elect a different governor and we will pass these laws that will put us on a path toward a really vibrant clean energy future. Is the Public Utilities Commission... Um, uh, in your view, as it's currently constituted, friendly or unfriendly to uh, green energy? I'll just use the – I'll use a shorthand, green energy. Um, In my view, they look to the legislature and the governor to set the agenda. They don't consider it their job to be setting our state policy, but they implement within the guides provided by the legislature. And I've got a lot of respect for the work they do. Would I appoint the same individuals? I'm not sure. But they are, I think, doing their best within the policy framework that lawmakers have given them and the governor uh, to to follow that path. And where the change really does need to begin is with a legislature and a governor willing to set goals that say New Hampshire really is open for business. What would it take— to make New Hampshire a leader in renewable green energy? What, what would it take? It's not rocket science. We've seen plenty of other states, not just the ones that I've named, but states across the country, set that example, beginning with saying we're open for business by setting a meaningful renewable portfolio standard goal, not this fraction of 1%, but 5 and then 10 and 20% and beyond. Is that something the legislature can do, or is that something Absolutely. for a governor? That's something the legislature can and has done through legislation. Unfortunately, the latest attempt to revise that from 07 to 5.4% was vetoed. And which, which, committees, which committees in the House and the Senate deal with the question of the goals for the renewable portfolio Renewable Portfolio Standard. The In the House, it's the Science, Technology, and Energy Committee. In the Senate, it's the Energy and Commerce Committee. And citizens can show up at their hearings, can track the legislation online at the New Hampshire State House website and make their voice heard. So that's number one. Set a much more ambitious goal on the Renewable Portfolio Standard that essentially requires the state as a whole to move aggressively towards renewable uh, renewable energy, right? That's right. That's number one. That's one critical step. We can do a lot more on the efficiency side because before worrying about generating a lot of clean kilowatt hours, we should be reducing the kilowatt hours that we use while enjoying a good quality of life. And uh, we know that through the New Hampshire Saves program, We've been using an outdated model of attaining energy efficiency, which focuses simply on reducing kilowatt hours. That's the electricity use, when in reality, most of our carbon pollution in New Hampshire is coming from combustion of fossil fuels in our automobiles, in our furnaces, 
uh, particularly gasoline for our cars and natural gas and oil and propane for our home heating needs. So moving toward a, a more progressive efficiency standard where we look at energy optimization, where the goal is to reduce total energy consumption, not just the electricity portion. And one form that would take, as other states have shown, is to transition our, we are second in the nation in the amount of of homes that are relying on oil, home heating oil, which is very polluting. And we could transition that to heat homes as, as we heat ours in southern New Hampshire with electric heat pumps. So we get solar energy from the sun on our roof. When we don't have enough solar power in in the dead of winter, we get the additional electricity we need from wind farms through an independent energy supplier. And then we can use that electricity, clean electricity, from the wind and the sun to heat our home all winter long with modern cold temperature heat pumps. Are there any meaningful programs in the state of New Hampshire to provide incentives to people to be more efficient in their transportation, more efficient about uh, making their homes tighter and better, um, and uh, more able to purchase from private companies and, 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 by the way, create lots of lots of good jobs for changing over heat sources to renewable um, sources of providing both heat uh, and uh, air conditioning as it happens as well as electricity what are the what are the programs like at the state level and is there any funding for this so there's some funding through the New Hampshire saves program which is administered by the utilities there was a good effort in the legislature this past session, which unfortunately didn't get through with, with the governor's opposition, to spend more of the Reggie dollars that come in on efficiency instead of a very nominal rebate to ratepayers, which nobody is able to notice because it's so small. We could put more of that money into energy efficiency programs, and we could rethink these programs from that simplistic kilowatt hour reduction on the electricity side toward a more holistic energy optimization approach. Uh, So the the basic programs exist. New Hampshire Saves has deployed good money to enable projects, maybe $500 at a time on a several thousand dollar project. That helps, but we could go much further and much faster. In fact, I've referenced uh, our neighbors to the south and and to the west. To the east, the state of Maine uh, recently passed a bill that Governor Mills signed to install 100,000 heat pumps and get that state, which is the number one most reliant on home heating oil, off of that highly polluting energy source for heating needs. We could do the same. And they're directing a lot of those heat pumps into low-income communities, so homes that can least afford it, that are most reliant on the LIHEAP program for, for home heating assistance, which is, again, public money going to put more carbon pollution into the atmosphere. Why not spend those public dollars that we're already committing to help low-income folks stay warm in the winter toward a clean heating source. We've been talking with Dan Weeks here on Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM talking about the energy and the environment here in New Hampshire and what we need to do to get with the program, people, and start doing something meaningful about addressing the climate crisis that we all face. It's time for New Hampshire to step up to the plate. Dan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. We'll be back after this to wrap up. Don't go away. You're listening to New Hampshire Now with Chris Ryan, presented by the New Hampshire College and University Council. 
We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com for your binge-listening pleasure. Well, we really enjoyed a great show with Dan Weeks, my good friend, a political activist and an energy and environment expert, talking about what we need to do in New Hampshire to help us move forward, to, to become a player in tackling the climate crisis instead of an outlier. Sounds to me from a from a political standpoint that we need a new governor. Uh, we need uh, more legislators who understand the imperative of a green economy. Uh, that would be a pretty good start. And Dan provided lots of specific things, all doable, that we need to do in New Hampshire to get with the program. Speaking of program, it's off the record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM. I want to thank all my my listeners. We'll be back next week, and it may be that next week we get to uh, have a special holiday program with songs and poetry and stories and a season of light coming to WKXL. So we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. It's off the record with Paul Hodes.